It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. If you own a motorcycle, especially a classic or even modern BMW, chances are you are familiar with or have spoken with Ted Porter at the Beamer Shop about suspension, transmission, or headwork for your motorcycle. Ted's history with all things BMW goes back into the mid-70s when he bought his first airhead. That, no surprise, started a lifelong involvement with the bikes that eventually blossomed into work as a professional mechanic later opening the Beamer shop in 2004. In today's episode, we'll visit with Ted about growing up as the son of a mechanic and how that shaped his personal experiences. We'll dig into his long history with BMW airheads, his experience as a master BMW technician, and some entertaining stories as only Ted can tell them. So here we go. It's Ted Porter from the Beamer shop on the Airheads 247 podcast. We're on the phone with Ted Porter from Ted Porter's Beamer Shop. And Ted, let me just say on the outset here, uh, as a man who spends a lot of his day on the phone, uh, I know because I've spoke with you a few times about uh, parts and repairs. Thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you, Darren. It's my pleasure. So a few years ago, I stumbled upon an archived recording uh, of an interview or radio piece you did for NPR. Uh, and at the time, I think it was more based sort of on your work uh, in the economy at the time as a small independent business operator, not necessarily right. motorcycle uh, related. One of the things, though, I remember about that interview uh, was you talking about your father uh, a lot. And I want to start there. Uh, you've got a neat thing on your website, a tribute to John Porter. So tell me uh, about your relationship with your dad, his influence on you, and how sort of he got you set off on the path you're on these days. Right. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, I put that tribute up on the site when he passed away back in 2004 and was going to take it down, but I've had many people tell me to keep it up, that uh, they found something of value in that. So it's still there all these years later. But, uh, yeah, I grew up the son of a car mechanic, and he was just um, really great in his field. And uh, he worked at Ford dealerships his whole life until he retired, and uh, he would oftentimes, he'd be the guy the other guys would go to if they had a problem they couldn't figure out, and and uh, I used to go to work with him as a kid back in the 60s if I had, uh, well, if it was summer or if I had a day off from school, sometimes I'd go to the dealership and, and just hang out. It was just a fun thing to do, but he was, he was um, always uh, looking to go to the next step. He was always, instead of just being a line mechanic, then he went on to 
uh, ultimately specialized in automatic transmissions. In fact, he was the only guy in the dealership that worked on them. And um, But he was always great with uh, helping the other guys, um, uh, teaching the, the younger guys, and he was great at pointing stuff out to me as a kid. You know, uh, I mean, I, I have these little moments in time that stand out for me going down the road, and he would look at me and say, did you feel that shift? He says, that's how an automatic transmission is supposed to shift. And, and, and my fascination with suspension started with him. He used to point out bad behavior that a car would have and, and uh, a blown shock, and he'd say, look at that tire. It's bouncing like a basketball. That's lack of damping. And so, anyway, uh, I just sort of grew up in that environment, and then when I got into mini bikes and dirt bikes and ultimately BMW motorcycles, it was just sort of a natural thing you know, that, that, that evolved. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, it, it sounds like uh, your father went beyond, let's fix this, whatever the problem is, let's repair it, and would oftentimes say, well, we need to find the root of the problem, and how can we improve this so we don't have to fix it again? That's true. And then also, uh, as you were saying that, I, I just another memory flashed across my mind. And uh, again, this was probably in the late 60s. I was at work with him, and he lifted the hood of a car, and uh, he would just tell me, sit on the stool, you can ask me questions, but you got to let me work. And and so I remember him lifting the hood of this car. And, you know, back then we had insulation. There was always insulation under the hood of the car. And the insulation was falling down. And he grabbed some adhesive and he, and he put, it, put the, the insulation back up. And he said, you know, you all, whatever you do for a living, you always want to stamp your name and your work. He said, this customer will, will remember us. Because even though it's, you know this was not part of the job, it's not on the repair order to you know to resecure the insulation. But when you go the extra mile and you do the extra thing, the customer is always going to remember you, and it shows that you care. So stuff like that, you know, just old old school, you know, being proud of your work, whatever it is that that you do, and that always really struck uh, you know deep with me. Well, that's um, let's just say thanks to your dad for that, because uh, I know a lot of guys like myself who've leaned on you uh, for work and repairs over the years or parts and things like that. Uh, we're really glad that his work ethic rubbed off on you and we get to take advantage of that as well. So, well, thank you. Appreciate yeah, that. that's that's really cool. Uh, so you grew up in D.C., um, Tell me just a little bit, you know, you mentioned uh, your dad was at the Ford dealer there. Uh, just tell me a little bit about uh, little Teddy running around uh, D.C. back in the day. What, what, you know, what was that like? Well, um, at least as it relates to the motorcycle industry, um, a, a kid in the neighbor had a mini bike, and that 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 just lit the fire, you know, and it wasn't long before I had a mini bike. I saved up paper out money and and so on, and uh, my dad chipped in some dough and got the first mini bike. And it's also my introduction to suspension, you know, which ultimately Beamer Shop went on to specialize in because the the the, the guy had taken the shocks off and he put these steel just these steel channel struts in there so it had no suspension so that kind of you know right out of the gate i was trying to figure out a way to <laughs> yeah. solve that problem but um <laughs> but then funny. uh somewhere in the late 60s um i heard this sound and i saw out of the corner of my eye it, that it was a motorcycle but it was a very different sound and it was about four houses up from where i grew up 
in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And I went up to see what it was, and I saw a BMW on the tank. And um, this was the first time I'd see this. Gaithersburg was a small town. It was a dairy farm town. I mean, it's nothing like it, like it is today. And we certainly didn't have BMW dealerships around. But uh, this guy, you know, was riding this shiny Slash 2 up this very steep hill, and it made a very unique sound, and it really caught my attention. And I'll always remember that, because I always tried to get a look at that thing to try and figure out what the heck that was. And, you know, I don't know, was I 9 or 10 years old back then? But then, uh, you know, into the 70s, and I'm, I'm riding dirt bikes, and then I'm, you know, I, I ended up putting my Enduro on the street at a 175 Kawasaki, which was a 1973, which uh, was my street bike back then. And um, I, I started seeing Beamers around town, of course, in D.C., uh, Metro Messenger, you know, it was sort of like the checker cabs of New York City, you know, these yellow and black slash twos running all over D.C. Uh, as courier bikes. Oh, really? Yeah, huh. uh, it was a big thing in D.C. And uh, Wixom fairings uh, with Metro Messenger uh, scrolled across the, the top. The, the the old Q switch, I don't know if you remember those, but no. those, those were the original pulsing, pulsating uh, headlights. Oh, okay. You know, it would strobe your headlight. And uh, so, um, anyway, <laughs> there's probably several chapters to that story. But I ended up with a Slash 7, went to the dealer, wanted a new motorcycle, I'd had a lot of used bikes, and I just wanted something brand new. And I, you know, I could barely afford it, but I bought this brand new R80 slash seven, which I still have today. So what and year? What year was that? Uh, Seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. Okay. 78. So that's uh, snowflake or wire rims? No wire wheel, single disc. You know, real basic model. Um, it's you know, I wanted the RS, but it was just back then. I, those were something like. Forty-eight hundred dollars. I mean, they were they were insanely expensive. Do you remember the R eighty slash seven was insanely expensive? What did you pay for it back then? Do you remember? I think it was thirty-six hundred, if I remember correctly. That uh, was a lot. Of yeah, money. that's a it's a lot of money. <laughs> and um, in fact, my friends thought I was nuts because you know they Beamers were not that popular back. You know, they they were considered ugly and slow and. But I, I, they just really resonated with me, particularly the um, the automotive nature of it. You know, it had a ring and pinion instead of uh, in the final drive instead of a chain and sprocket. You know, it had a it had an input shaft coming off the transmission and a dry clutch, just like a car would have. And and just the way it's put together and the quality of the the components and the materials and it, it I just fell in love. And so that started my fascination with BMWs. And then, of course, I started working on it. And ultimately, I got a job as a courier, and I started using it as a courier bike in D.C. And so I did that for a couple years. And so, uh, you know, that means working on your bike. And uh, then I started meeting other other guys with Beamers, you know, and and uh, and started working on their bikes. And then by 1980, I'd, I'd started working at a at a BMW shop in DC. So let's go back to the uh, R87. Uh, so uh, you still have that bike. How many miles on it? And so, sort of what uh, you know? What have you done to that bike over the years? Have you kind of kept it stock? Have you, you know, what, what's the status of it now? It's uh, right now. It's in pieces. I, I'm uh, <laughs> I, I, unfortunately. I guess you know. I'm the, I'm the cobbler 
cobbler's kids that have no shoes. I was just going to say that analogy. Oh, yes. My gosh. I, uh, it's one of the reasons that I cut back on what we offer here because in terms of uh, airhead component repair, uh, I would get booked for two months, and it wasn't much fun being that behind, and I never got to work on, on my own bikes. And I have so many of them now, and they're in various states of disrepair, and you know, I think only two of them run. Um, so now I'm getting an opportunity to start working on my own motorcycles because we only do cylinder head work now, and that's been, that's been really great. But, uh, but getting back to your question, yeah. um, so initially... The first problem I had with it was, of course, the brakes, the single disc, just not enough braking force, so I converted it over to dual disc. And then I had a couple buddies with R90Ss, and I used to ride with those guys. We'd go out to West Virginia, these wide-open spaces, and they would just leave me, you know, when it came to top speed. So I realized I needed a a bigger top end and and a lower final drive ratio, so I did that. And then I always really wanted a 90S anyway, so, so I put S bodywork on it and Delorto carbs, and I, of course I increased the valve size and lightened the fly. I mean, I just did all the standard stuff sure. you know, that we did to those bikes back then. Um, and then uh, at some point I had an oil leak, and I always wanted to go through the bottom end, and I, I, I had not done that. And I think a lot of us go through this. We start working on on these old bikes and you take one thing apart and then you take another thing apart and then you think, well, gee, I'm this far, you know, why don't I pull the motor out of the frame and let's, you know, let's get the frame painted or, or coated <laughs> and, you know, and it just, you know, it snowballs on you. And that's kind of what happened to that bike. So, um, it's painted. I got the painted painted parts done, and I just need to build the motor and get that thing back together. Okay, so good. So, so yeah. it'll so it'll be back on the road soon. We hope it will. Yeah, it uh, will. I I was reading uh, again in um, uh, the little story about your father John uh, on your website. Uh, you, I guess you're sort of uh, if this is right, your first professional uh, mechanic job uh, was Bavarian Motor House. Now, was that something you started? Uh, yeah. So, well, before that, yeah, I, I, I was getting parts at Capital Cycle, the original Capital Cycle in Washington D.C. Yes, was part of the Metro Messenger fleet. So they had, you know, initially it was Metro Messenger, and then they had a repair shop to keep the bikes on the road, and then they were bringing in parts from from Germany to keep the bikes on the road, and it, and then Capital Cycle was sort of formed uh, from that. And, and I would stop in there often to get parts, and they had a Help Wanted sign hanging on the wall. This was 1980. So uh, I, I was getting a little tired of the courier life anyway and, and, uh, and, and started working there. And uh, because of my mechanical background, um, you know, I knew a lot more about the bikes than some of the other guys working there, you know, so I uh, started sort of running the service department after a bit. And then uh, in 1984, I had been doing so much side work. Uh, In 1984, I decided to open Bavarian Motor House, and that was in Rockville, Maryland. And I did that. Well, I opened it first out of my home and then ultimately got the commercial space. Let me ask you this. So uh, you've essentially been a professional mechanic most of your life, all of your life, professional life. Um, was it, um, back then when you first started out, was it difficult making ends meet? Were you nervous, uh, about how that was going to pan out possibly as a career or was it just something you wanted to do and you just went for it? Well, I think the latter, um, but you know, it's interesting 
that I, I didn't make enough money when I first started that shop because I didn't know enough about business. And we see this a lot now, hmm. um, where you know just because you can turn a wrench, that doesn't mean you can run a business. And so I worked hard, but I didn't charge enough money, and I hadn't yet learned the concept that when you sell time, when you sell labor, you're selling something that's perishable. And if you're just a one-man shop and you work eight hours a day, that means you have an inventory of eight hours to sell, and you can't give any of it away for free. And I didn't learn that until I was a little bit older, and I'd gone on to, you know, that that business was ultimately um, purchased by Bob Hennig. Uh, he had a used parts business. I had the service business. He wanted to open up a dealership. I initially said no, but the more we talked, the more I liked his vision. And so we basically moved my service business in under his building and opened Bob's BMW, and, and that was in 90. One, I think. So okay. Grand Motorhouse from eighty four to ninety one. Okay, so I didn't and, know that. And, well, and, let me jump in there. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that. So essentially, you were uh, on the ground floor uh, with uh, Bob's BMW, which, of course, yeah. most folks know nowadays is uh, one of the legacy BMW dealers around. Uh, yeah. Nineteen ninety one. You know, we say this; it doesn't seem like that long ago when you say the nineties, but in reality, it was a hell of a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I want to get back to this point because I think it's important. Yeah. Um, because we see today, we well, as I was saying, I went to work for Bob. Uh, I watched how he ran his business. I learned a heck of a lot more about business. And we'll fast forward just a little, and, I, and then we can go back. But when I started this business in 2004, I I had learned a lot, and I realized what was necessary to to be successful and as far as the business part of it goes and I, I i see younger guys getting into it now and some of them are making the same mistakes that i made at my first shop not understanding that it's a perishable thing that you sell that you've got you've only got today to sell today's hours you can't give stuff away you can't do stuff for free Sometimes customers will want you to just, well, while you're there, can you just do this for me? <laughs> you know, you hear that all the time. Yeah. And no, you can't because you're not going to survive unless you, you know, get paid for, for your work and what you're worth. And most customers will understand that if you explain that to them. But anyway, um, yeah, we, we, we've seen some local shops go out of business, and it, it just breaks my heart, especially when I know that guy was a really good mechanic, and if he just had more business savvy, he'd be doing great, and now he's gone, you know, that type of thing. So that's why I thought it was important to talk about that. Well, no, anyway. th th no, that is good, and let me just jump in and say uh, one thing I've often said uh, to folks, uh, no matter what uh, business or industry you're in, uh, one thing you cannot buy is time. Exactly. You can't, but that's the, the one thing. I mean, money will buy you just about anything. But it, yeah. uh, in your case, it won't buy you uh, an extra, you know, day to work on the bikes. And, you know, for folks uh, who work a five-hour week, it won't buy you an extra day off, you know, so to speak. Yeah, so, exactly. And, and as far as these small independent shops, you know, look, if you're a customer of a small independent shop, um, understand that, that concept of that perishable labor, you know, 
consider that if, if you value that shop and you want that mechanic to be around, you know, I, I, I would just ask, don't go in there and say, well, look, if I get you to do this, this, and this, can you discount it? Because, no, he can't. <laughs> I'm telling you, <laughs> he can't. Do you want him to be there next week? Do you want him to be there next year? Then he has to bill those hours to stay in business. And, and uh, anyway, I could, you know, after 40 years in the business, I could go on and on about that. No, that, those are important, important things uh, to note, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. All right, I, I I didn't realize that you had worked at Bob's and you were there uh, on the sort of the ground floor of things getting started. So in '91, uh, sort of setting the stage here. So that was, you know, the second generation of the Paralever GS was coming out. The Airheads were entering their final uh, run. Uh, K bikes, uh, you know, all the K bikes were going on. So were you specifically? Uh, airhead mechanic? Did you work on K-bikes? No, we okay. did everything. You okay. know, yeah, it was a dealership, so, you know, we were doing it all uh, for all the, the bikes were, that were there at the time. Um, also, one of my mechanics who was working for me at my shop uh, came with me to Bob's. So between, that was Mark Delaney, and between Mark and I, you know, we had quite a bit of airhead experience and so we and of course bob had been very involved in in uh, the airheads and, and classic bikes and antiques you know going way back you know with his museum and so on so we were right at home there and uh there there were a lot of things that i really enjoyed about that experience there and bob and suzanne were great to to work for and and uh and you know i, I he gave me a lot of freedom to let me set the shop up and do the hiring and, and the training. And, and, you know, as long as we were taking care of the customers and he and I were on the same page about that, you know, the customer is VIP. They, they, they are, they are, you know, important above everything else is that the customer's happy. And as long so, as they're not asking yes. for free time. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that's okay. You, you, you don't have to give them free time. You just have to give yeah. them good service, and, you know, be there for them. So, um, so we were we were definitely in lockstep over that stuff, and so it was a great experience. And we hired some great people. Bud Proven came down from 
from Vermont, and that was wonderful, working with Bud, and I was able to let go of some of the stuff that I was doing. Like, I was doing all the cylinder head work at Bob's, and, you know, I was the only one there that knew how to do it, and, and, and uh, BMW doesn't teach it. And so when Bud came along, you know, I was able to, to, to let go of some of that stuff because he had some cylinder head work experience, and, and he, he, was, he was great to work with. We had a really good crew there. Yeah, we had a, uh, had, had a great uh, visit uh, with Bud here recently. So mm. um, uh, I figured you guys had crossed paths there. Yeah, yeah, we worked together for a while. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious, uh, in setting up the shop, this might seem kind of like a, sort of a silly question, but I, I want to ask it. So when you're setting up a new dealer, uh, a new dealership there with a new service bay and all, and all that kind of stuff, I imagine you had to meet BMW specifications for what the shop was. So were you literally like getting the big blue board with all the tool outlines and stuff and all that sort of came in and you'd set it up yeah. from new that way? Well, so a couple things. Uh, first of all, I had already invested pretty heavily in special tools, and part of our agreement is that I would I would supply all the tools, basically supply a working, ready to you know turnkey service shop. Okay. And then over time, because remember this was a brand new dealership, right? And you know <laughs> there's a lot of in, a lot of significant money going into this thing to get it going, and so I was doing my best to help out. So. I, I've just brought in all the special tools that I had already purchased, and then over time, the agreement was I would take them home and we would replace them. So over time, a little at a time, I would start taking special tools home and we would be buying new ones for the dealership. Um, but the other thing, uh, in terms of your, to answer your question, um, there are some requirements. In fact, I was uh, I was working with someone at BMW at that time who was trying to develop some formulas that, that were all related to your market penetration. How many bikes are you expected to sell uh, based on the number of bikes you're supposed to sell? How much square footage do you need in the service department? How many mechanics do you need in the service department? Excuse me, technicians yeah. in the service <laughs> department? And all of that stuff. And um, so we we were, with the new dealership, we were, you know, fine. We had We had plenty of space, and especially when we you know, put up the new building, uh, we met all that criteria. But um, the, the biggest thing with setting up a, a, a dealership service department is making it profitable, which is really difficult. It's yeah. challenging. People think that's where all the money is made, and it can be, but it's, it's all about productivity and efficiency and being able to measure those two things. And I don't want to go too out into the, into the weeds here, but you, you, all that stuff has to be measured and if, if the productivity of efficiency, efficiency is low, then corrective measures have to be enacted to to turn that around. Well, Otherwise, Ted, you know, it, it's yeah. it's no different than than any other business. My wife is a pharmacist, and she works for a large, uh, you know, it's Kroger, whatever. And you know, she's constantly you know complaining about these sort of uh, efficiency things that they have to look over how long did it take to fill this prescription, et cetera, et cetera. And, though, and you know, she knows it's part of the business. She's been doing it long enough. But I, I mentioned that just to say that sort of idea is applicable in any business. And motorcycle shops, no different. Yeah, exactly. And there, there's a lot of that kind of behind-the-scenes thing that BMW owners, you know, don't, have 
they're not privy to. And so they might complain about something, but then if they knew the behind-the-scenes story, they'd realize, oh, I probably shouldn't complain about that. Um, because, uh, you know, I mean, we all know there are, there are well-run dealerships and not-so-well-run dealerships. Yeah. But, you know, the, the guys that are out there really trying to do it right, um, you know, they, they, they have to survive in, in a very challenging industry. The profit margins at the dealerships are small. Oh, my gosh. It's, I mean, it's, it's shocking. You know, now that I'm in the, mostly in the aftermarket, um, I realize how hard it is for the dealerships uh, when, when their margins are so small and everybody wants a discount. It's, it's tough. So, um, you know, support, support those shops and uh, understand that it's, you know, they, they've really got to put a lot into it to survive. Um, and that's why you see a lot of dealerships go out of business. Yeah. Tell me about your experience. This is a, a broad uh, question. I understand that. Uh, working with BMW of North America when you were at the dealership, uh, as far as repairs go, service bulletins, uh, support uh, for the technicians, uh, and you know maybe going to tech school every year. What was your relationship like and, and interaction like with uh, uh, the motorcycle uh, uh, BMW of North America? Yeah, well, back then it was great. Um, it's changed, and uh, you'd have to speak with someone who has more. You know, I left the dealerships in 2004, so... Um, I can only speak to what it was like back yeah. then, but uh, it was great uh, in my experience because we had tech reps who were, in many cases, most cases, of uh, technical people. They were former uh, mechanics. They 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 understood the systems. If if I was struggling with something that was odd, um, you know, they would. Uh, well, first of all, you could talk to them on the phone. I understand that there's some limitations on that now. It's but again, I can't speak to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a great rep uh, back on the East Coast, Jed Webster. He was a he was a great guy, and uh, they would come by the dealership. I think about once a quarter. Um, they uh, you know they they were just very supportive, and the the training was good. Um, you know there were some complaints from the dealers back then that. Uh, you could actually fail a certification test back then, <laughs> and they sort of made it so that you can't fail a certification test. <laughs> I don't know what it's like today, but I, I wasn't real crazy about those changes that I saw. Um, you know, it's basically everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets 100%. Doesn't you know? Yeah, I saw that trend. I don't know where it went, um, and I don't know what it's like today. So I can just tell you that my experience was great. The training was was good. Um, the um, the tech reps were great. Uh, I was fortunate because I had a great relationship with Jed, and uh, uh, he, he put a lot of trust in me. He knew that I wouldn't bother him for uh, stuff outside of warranty, you know, coverage for a, a, you know a, a repair that's outside of warranty, unless I really felt like it was deserving of his time. You know, goodwill repairs, covering something under warranty when a bike's out of warranty, um, and so you know he would take those things into consideration. He oftentimes would give me what I wanted, you know, so that I could fix the bike for the customer without charge. Um, and then uh, he left, and I wasn't sure where he went. 
And uh, I got a new rep who's a little bit younger, a good guy, uh, but not as experienced as Jed. Well, then I moved to California in 2000, and I went to work for a dealership here. And, of course, the first thing I wanted to know was who's my rep. Right. And I ended up being Jed. So that was great. <laughs> we got reunited. And I got to work with him again until uh, he retired, and, and I left uh, BMW. So it was good. Well, that, that, that's good to know. Uh, and you're right. I think uh, things have probably changed, but that's, uh, that's another story uh, for another day. Yeah. Get, yeah. And before we move, move on from your time there, I, I'm just curious, uh, and speaking specifically to Airheads, uh, again, you started there in 91, uh, you said, and were there for almost 10 years or a little more than 10 years. Airhead specific question here, what were you seeing a lot problematic-wise with bikes of certain eras? So folks were bringing, you know, slash five, slash sevens in, uh, later model mono levers, and then, you know, onto the paralever and the last run of airheads. What yep. were sort, sort of some typical uh, issues that, you would, that would come up on a regular basis with some of those different models? Well, you know, as a general rule, the newer the bike, the more refined, you know, they kept improving stuff. And then, of course, they'd make some mistakes along the way. But, you know, the Slash 5s, gosh, where shall I start? You know, the, the non, I mean, the non-fused models, you know, they would, the bike would fall, if the bike fell over on the right side and it jammed the, the brake lever throttle, throttle assembly down, and the key was on, the hot wire for the front brake switch would touch the handlebar. And that would sh run, send a short, you know, and, and, and melt the wiring from that brake switch down into the headlight bucket, down through the main harness to the horn. And that's where it would stop. And so, oh my gosh, I, we did so many of those, uh, replace the wiring harness and add fuses. You know, and of course the idler gear pin for the transmission would fall into the back of the. You know, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and and of course in '74 they came out with the slash six series, but they were still using the smaller flywheel bolt, and mostly on the R90s's. You know, some of those flywheel bolts were shearing off, and we had you know the shift fork problem. The '74 was, you know, it was a new year. I mean, throughout their history, whenever they. The first year of something is not usually the best. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, and so they increased the, you know, by 76, they'd done so many things with the Slash 6. I mean, 76 was a great year. You know, they had big bolt flywheel. They had uh, improved the push rods. They increased the size of the cam seal up through 75, the front cam seal. You know, every time you put a set of points in one of those 70 to 75 bikes, you always replace the cam seal because they're always leaking. They... They re revised that in, in 76. Um, and then by, by the Slash 7 series, most of that stuff was, you know, was, was pretty dialed in. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we had cylinders. That, that then the R100 came out, and it's so hard on its cylinder bores, you know. And we used to bore those. And there was a point at which I just stopped boring those cylinders because they were so unstable. They were so thin. And... You would, you know, you'd use a sun and hone, and you'd be honing the cylinder, and then you'd, you'd think you got your clearances right, and you'd walk away, and you'd come back, but the cylinder would have cooled off, and then you'd go back in with your bore gauge, and the hole's not straight anymore. 
And you get the hone, and you start... And, I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. And so by 81, when they came out with the Nicosil cylinders, that, that solved it. And so for a long time, of course, we were finding these Nicosil 81 and on cylinders and putting them on the Slash 7s, you know, just finding them used. Um, and for a while, they were not expensive from BMW. Almost, like, shockingly not expensive. Like, somebody made a pricing error because <laughs> they were so <laughs> inexpensive. And then they went way up in price, and so we would, we would find good used ones. And, of course, now Siebenrock has their kit. You just buy it and bolt it on. But, yeah, any of those. In fact, I just went through this with a guy. I was doing a pair of heads for a 77 RS, and he said, please give me your – can you, can you please measure clearances? I'm, I'm chasing a, a oil consumption problem. And I said, have you looked at your cylinders? He goes, no, no, I'm looking at the heads first. I said, you've got to look at your cylinders. You've got steel cylinders, R100. I'm telling you, they're not going to be true. Well, tell me the specs. Okay, fine. So I gave him the specs on the guides, typical wear, nothing unusual. I said, you know, I'm telling you, you've got to look at your cylinders. So he had them mic'd locally, and then he sent me the numbers, and then I gave him the minimum specs. I said, yeah, you're, you're way over your, your maximum wear limits on the cylinder it's it's it you know he just didn't want to spend the money so he finally came around and you know bought a bought a set of nicosil cylinders for it and he'll be fine now he's you know the heads will be done he'll have nicosil cylinders he's not going to have any oil consumption problems anymore so you know that that was an issue in the 70s that got resolved by 81 and then of course they made a lot of other improvements with electronic ignition and uh, and so forth but, uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, I could go on and on. 85 and on, the chassis, well, they had some, they changed the helical gear on the, they went to seven, the first 17.5-degree helical gears on the input shafts of the five-speed. Uh, what's the, it was, a, it was a month cutoff, and I'm forgetting what it is off the top of my head, in 81, uh, or 82, I guess it is. Now I'm, start, I'm getting old, see, I'm starting to forget this stuff. But <laughs> anyway, um, they uh, they would break off the dot the drive dogs the drive dogs would literally just break off the input gear, and so they came out with a new input shaft somewhere in again the month of manufacture escapes me eighty five eighty six I forget um, to improve that and 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 make some other improvements. But then in eighty six they took the circlip out of the transmission, you know, and you probably know about that. That was a, a huge mistake, and they put it back. In uh, '95, uh, and yeah. acknowledge well, sort of acknowledge their mistake. Not, I mean, you can put the you can put the service bulletin that states the circlip is no longer needed, and then you can put the service bulletin next to it that says you really should put the circlip in, and you can put them side by side, and you know, <laughs> you, can, you can sort of extrapolate from that. Yeah, I mean, Ted, yeah, I always found that recognized. I always found that a little peculiar uh, that. For some reason, it was decided, you know, the last, whatever it was, 2,000, 3,000 models of the Airhead series, they decided to put it back in. Yeah. Well, you know, a little late to the party, but yes. uh, they, <laughs> they ultimately figured it out. And, you know, the rest of us have been cutting grooves in the output shaft, you know, for, you know, years, uh, trying to resolve that problem. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, you know, it just seems like the newer it gets... With a couple little hiccups, the better it gets. Um, but then it's a matter of personal preference. You know, some people want something that looks like a slash five. Yeah, they don't care that it's a, a drum brake and four speed, and the idler gear needs a little work, and 
it's got its issues here and there, and the drive splines are a little short, and flywheel bolts are a little small, and, you know, it's still a cool bike. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so. And, and, and the other thing cool, it's really cool, too, of course, is the interchangeability of parts. You know, you can take the four-speed out and put a five-speed in. You can, you know, whatever. You can do whatever you want. You can, uh, you can pull the motor. Put a put a big bolt crank in. I, in fact, I did that on a seventy four ninety S. Not well. I, did, I guess it was a long time ago now. Um, this guy wanted a bunch of performance work, and we were starting with a small bolt crank. And I thought, you know, you probably if, if you're going to do all this stuff, you probably ought to go up to the big bolt crank. And guess what? Drops right in. Yeah. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.com bmwmoa.org. Use the code airhead247. Thank you very much for your support. So now, it is nice. And, you know, I've got a, uh, I've got a 81 uh, R80GS and I was never happy, shockingly, with the front suspension on that. I mean, the forks were real spindly. And uh, since I had one of the first year models, uh, there was, you know, I ended up finding a service bullet and I kept having this rattling going on internally in the fork leg. And you might recall this, I don't know, it was kind of an obscure one, but there was some, I don't know, spring carrier or circlip or something in there that needed to be replaced. Well, I did it, you know, uh, because I could. And then, you know, something happened. I think I blew out a bearing, uh, front wheel bearing somewhere. And I just thought, you know, I'm not going to continue repairing this front end. It sucks. And I just basically bolted on uh, 88 on uh, GS uh, front end, and it's been great. Yeah, that part, you know, when you look at that, it's, it's pretty remarkable. You know, they used one valve cover gasket it, on all the 1970 and on bikes, airheads. One and in fact, it goes back prior to that. Now, when I was working on the the old stuff, I stopped at fifty five. So I would work on fifty five to sixty nine. Yeah, uh, and then later on, I said that's it. I'm done with those seventy and on only. But um, 
But even, you know, 55 to 69 models use the same valve cover gasket except for the R69S. So really, you could say from 50, and, and it may even go back before that. I didn't work on bikes before that. Uh, but uh, one valve cover gasket on your shelf that covers all of those bikes, and, uh, and you could say that about a lot of different parts. So it's, uh, that part of it was, was really great. Um, for those of us who worked on them for a living. Yeah, I, I've been in sitting in my garage with a buddy of mine before, you know, just sitting around after we had finished fixing or repairing something, having a few beers, and, you know, one of the things we would do is, all right, how many parts on your uh, bike would cross over to mine? <laughs> you know, right. we'd just sort of sit there and point them out and have fun, you know, and argue, well, I don't know if that one would fit, but, yeah. Um, yeah, in spite of all the foibles and design flaws, uh, there, there's still an intrinsic thing about these bikes that folks like. It, it, it's, it's true. There, there's nothing else like it. Now, of course, you can say that about a Ducati of that time or a Triumph of that or a Harley or, you know, they were, they were their own flavor and personality and character. And if it resonated with you, there was nothing else like it. And it was kind of hard to you know, to step off of that and, 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 and you know, get that, uh, that itch scratched on, on another motorcycle. I mean, I certainly appreciated other brands, but, boy, if that, if that design and that sound and that reliability and that, you know, smoothness, you know, back then that was a very smooth motorcycle, you know, everything. I used to ride with a buddy uh, with his Triumph, and he had to carry a, uh, some extra taillight bulbs. <laughs> And we would often have to change them while we were riding because I think it was, his, I can't remember if it was a Norton or his Triumph, but it would literally shake the filaments right out of the bulbs. Yeah. And I would tell him, we'd be riding and go, hey, 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 your bulb's out. Oh, okay, okay, I got some extras. <laughs> Let's we talk. didn't have those issues. With no, them. no, not at all. I want to I want to talk about um, uh, the Beamer shop um, and... Uh, I we've sort of talked a little bit about your background and history and everything that led up to that. Um, I had always assumed you were a California native, but you weren't. Um, and so you decided to move out to California to sort of re yeah. reset. Uh, you had you obviously had taken what you've learned, uh, which during our conversation uh, is a lot uh, from working at Bob's and uh, probably smarter, uh, wiser, uh, and in, in a better position to, to take another stab at it on your own. Well, that's right. I, um, I came out here. Uh, I'd, I'd fallen in love with the area, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd been here a handful of times. seems like any time I had a little time off, uh, I knew where I wanted to go on vacation, and the Monterey Bay just really sucked me in. <laughs> and um, I also learned that the San Francisco Bay, at least at that time, was BMW's largest market. It probably still is. I don't know. But uh, I think there were seven dealerships in a 100-mile radius, something like that. Wow. So um, I had been offered a job, and I came out here to work, and I was at that dealership for about three years and had some great experiences. Uh, but without going into detail, it was time to move on, and uh, I met the Plams and went to work for them um, uh, at the Santa Cruz dealership. Okay, so folks will and, know uh, William and his son Eddie at Boxer 2-Valve now. That's right. Right? Mm -hmm. Yep, great guys. And um, so I was the service manager at that dealership, 
Um, and it was a it was a great place to work. And and uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about William before we move on from that. I mean, he yeah, I, I you know like a lot of folks, I've watched uh, his YouTube videos, which are great. Uh, and as a side note, kudos to him because, you know, I watch those and then I feel compelled to buy parts from them after I've watched them. So it's a great marketing, great marketing tool, but they're, they're doing a great job. Yeah. Well, he seems like, he seems like, uh, just a pretty chill, easygoing guy. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, that's. Well, I know him as Bill, so I, okay. I you know, I, I think he prefers to go by. I'm, I'm assuming he, he prefers to go by William these days. Um, but uh, yeah, he owned the. So he he started a dealership back in the '80s in a tiny little place, and in fact, I had visited them um, on one of my visits here before I moved here, and it was a tiny little dealership, but uh, had a great vibe, and. I don't remember the year, but at some point they put up a nice new building just south of Santa Cruz in the town of Watsonville. And uh, I went to work there as uh, their service manager, and I was there for a few years. And Bill had started bringing in the Wonderleash stuff. And so, you know, he was a pretty busy guy trying to run both of those. Um, but this goes back to some comments I made earlier about the profit margins in the dealerships. You know, they're not great because, uh, and I don't know that their location was ideal. Um, it certainly wasn't in a big major city center. You know, Watsonville is a smaller place uh, because it was a, a really well-run dealership. They were doing great work, very enthusiastic, knowledgeable people. Um, but it, it, it struggled. And, you know, Wonderleash, of course, had great potential. And so I'm sure, you know, Bill could have gone into all this if, if you've interviewed him as well. But uh, ultimately, he made the decision um, to to move, you know, in a different direction and just do the Wonderleash thing, and he sold the dealership. And the new dealer, the new owner of the dealership um, <laughs> was not quite as successful with it, and uh, it, uh, it, it, it went out of business. Um, and, and so I moved on, uh, so here I am in California with a mortgage and no job <laughs> and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. But, you know, sometimes things happen just sort of organically, and I started to get some phone calls, and people wanted to to know if I was still around. You know, they had known me as the service manager of these two dealers out here and wondered what happened to me. And uh, so next thing you know, I've you know, bikes are showing up at my doorstep at my home, and uh, so I started – Beamer shop out of the out of the garage and and uh, when was that? I guess that was two thousand four, and it wasn't long before uh, I I had way too many bikes in the driveway. I you know they were just crammed in everywhere waiting for me to work on them. So uh, in two thousand five, I you know became legit and uh, got commercial space and all the uh, permits and licenses and all the stuff you got to do. Let's talk about and, how uh, I just took off. Let's talk about how the what you've done there has has changed uh, over the years. So you mentioned, yeah. uh, and I'm not surprised to hear. Uh, I've known you know some mechanics that I've uh, here in my part of the country who, yeah, that at first you take bikes to their home shop and they'd help you out there, and then you know that grew into another business or they you know went somewhere else. So uh, that's not an uncommon uh, scenario, but. Um, you started out probably, I'm guessing, uh, with the Beamer shop as a full service uh, facility uh, f- for all 
BMW motorcycles, not just airheads, but, uh, and of course you can talk about that, but also mention how that's evolved into what you're currently doing now over the past, gosh, what's it, what's it been now? 16, 15 years or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot, it's a lot different than it was. It is. So, well, uh, and I'm a lot older than I, <laughs> than I was. Yeah. So that had something to do with the decisions. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, you know, my whole history had been BMW motorcycle service. And uh, that was just my natural inclination uh, when I got started. And at first it was just me. And then, uh, you know, I started hiring uh, some people. And uh, we worked on everything. Uh, and a couple things, first of all, you know, throughout my history, um, I had been involved with mail-order businesses. I'd always seen how mail-order could really be the key. I mean, you go all the way back to 1980, you know, when Reuben Moore owned Capital Cycle. You know, he was just so far ahead of his time. I mean, it's hard to imagine today, but he was the only BMW motorcycle parts mail-order business in the country. That's hard to believe. Hard to fathom. Yeah. Hard to fathom. And so, but he had this idea of, you know, this is before the Internet. He'd print these catalogs up and send them out to everybody, and you send in your order, and he ships you your parts. And so that was always in the back of my head. And then, um, of course, Bob's very successful mail-order business. And... Um, and I had been doing some mail order component repair, you know, all throughout that time. Well, ship it to me, you know, I'll box it up and ship it back to you. And um, and then uh, uh, Bob's, and then and then the other dealerships. There, there, there was always some mail order aspect to to uh, to to all of this. So I knew I wanted to do some of that. And um, one of the things that I'd noticed working at all these shops is that I was always the suspension guy. They're they're you know, BMW doesn't teach suspension. This is why you can't go into a dealership and have some suspension guru come out of the back and talk to you about all the major brands and what the differences are and so on. It's just not something you learn. Uh, I went through every technical training class offered for years. I went through the Service Manager Academy. I did all that stuff that they offered. So we started rebuilding shocks, um, selling shocks, we started doing a little bit of importing with suspension, and then the Canvas bikes come out, you know, 2005, and I realized that how much longer could I work on these bikes without being able to read codes? And then I learned about the GS911 diagnostic tool, and it was in its infancy back then, and I reached out to them, and uh, we met. It's a South African company, but... Uh, the owner was actually going to be in California, coincidentally, so we met and talked about it. And I ended up bringing that product to the United States. So that really helped in our service department because now we can read codes, clear codes, we can calibrate, we can do everything that the dealer can do except for firmware updates, but we can communicate with these controllers and do everything we need to do. So we could keep working on the newer bikes as they were coming out in addition to the, to the older bikes we were working on. And then, of course, I started selling that product mail order. So this is sort of how the mail order business started to evolve. Now we're importing suspension from Germany and Holland, and, and, uh, and then we bring in YSS from, from uh, Thailand for you know, our, our economy shock and, and so on and so forth. And then I meet the Tractive guys at a trade show in Germany, and I end up representing them in the United States. And in the meantime, I'm 
seeing all the struggles that I've long known about trying to run service departments, it's especially when it's your own shop, if you're going to have three, four guys working for you, somebody's got to be doing the quality control. And this means that I can't ever leave the shop. Yeah, I was going to say, that's you, right? It's me. Yeah. And so now what? You know, uh, I, I can't go to trade shows. I can't, I can't. In fact, back in the early early days, if I was going to go on vacation, we closed the shop. Everybody was off. It's, Sorry, guys, we're we're closing because I'm not going to be here. And then later on, of course, we we had service riders and and so on. But you know, I, I'm going to be the top technical guy here. It's just the way it is. And I'm going to have to be here to see how all this works being done. So that's the only way you can grow that business. Either that or it's just you. It's just going to be you, maybe you and a helper, maybe you and one other guy, and that's going to be the extent of it. And that's the the challenge uh, with with service departments if you want them to grow. Now, if you just want to be a one-man guy working out of your home, that's a different different kind of thing. But if you want to make a living and you want to maybe be able to retire someday and, you know, et cetera, then – you know, you, you obviously are going to have some interest in growing that, and and that that's going to be the hard part of the business to grow. Yeah. Meanwhile, the mail order business starts growing, and the interest in suspension because yeah, I went to the dealer, but you know they only sell one brand, and they don't really seem to know a lot about it. I'm like, yeah, you can't knock the dealer for that. There's no training for that. Uh, it's a specialty thing, and so. I started realizing that, you know, you can go anywhere and get a tire changed. You can go anywhere and get a 12K service, you know. You can't go anywhere and get, get, get good suspension advice. And it just sort of took off from there. And, uh, and that's, you know, really kind of been the, the primary growth part of the business is the suspension part. And, uh, and of course, the hex code products, the, the, the GS911 diagnostic tool. I mean, that's kind of become a household name these days. Yeah, and, you know, so when I... Have one foot I'm sorry to interrupt. We kept one foot in the door, though, with, uh, you know, I started doing less and less of the bench work. And that's the other thing, too, is, you know, there are lots of places I can send you to to have one of these five-speed transmissions rebuilt. I mean, it's, you know, gosh, lots of people doing that. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I want to jump, let me jump in there and say, yeah, when I sort of first became aware of you, it was because of your transmission work. And so uh, that, you know, there's an old YouTube video of you, you know, many years ago now, I guess it's been, you know, explaining the, yeah. the sir clip and all that stuff. But, you know, you, right. br- you bring up a good point there. Uh, there's a lot of quali- other qualified guys that can do that. Except for the cylinder heads. Right. There are few of us, very few of us. And, in fact, uh, there's a guy, without mentioning names, he's been a BMW mechanic for 40-plus years. He just sent me a pair of heads to work on. It's, it's, it's a specialized thing, and most people farm it out. And the automotive machine shops are making a mess of these heads. It's very frustrating, the damage that's being done to these heads. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not because – it's not due to a defect. It's not BMW's fault. It's not due to wear and tear. It's, it's damage done by human hands, a, 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 a tooling that wasn't – used properly or wasn't sized properly because it's an automotive machine shop. They're not going to buy an intake valve seat cutter that's exactly correct 44 millimeters because they work on everything else. and They, they get a set of BMW heads every once in a while, so they use a, a cutter that's too big and it grinds into the combustion chamber. And 
this becomes a problem later when I replace the intake seat because now it sits up proud of the combustion chamber. So that area all has to be welded up and machined, you know, to restore that. Well, that should have never happened in the first place. So it's that kind of stuff that's going on with these heads. And that's what's kind of compelled me to keep doing the head work. Um, it's, it's not as hard on me physically now that I'm, you know, working my way towards being an old man, um, it's it's just not as hard on me as uh, as some of the other work. Um, there's only you know two valve guides and two valves per head, and um, without getting overly uh, wonky out into the weeds here, it's just uh, it's just work that I can continue to do for now. And I and I, and there are only a couple guys that I would send you to. Probably a couple people you've already interviewed. Uh, you know who I, I would send head work to, but. But that's why we keep doing it. We keep our foot in that door. Yeah, and uh, it it's good to have uh, a specialty. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that yeah. with with suspension. Uh, yeah. You you found the niche there. Uh, you mentioned right. transmissions. Um, you know, that's of course a specialty job. But there are a lot of qualified uh, folks uh, who can do that and who do sp- specialize in that. And you know, I knew when it was time uh, on my ninety S uh, to have the heads done. Uh, you know, I, you were the first person I called and thank you for that. Well, of course. Uh, and you know, it's funny, you mentioned the story about another guy, uh, who wanted those done on his RS. And I remember you telling me, well, you can go out and have them mic'd and let me know what you find. And I just thought that is a complete waste of time for me. Uh, I just need to send them to you and let you do what you do. Um, that's, Mm -hmm. that's why you're there. Uh, and that that right made that made the most sense to me. But there are other guys, you know, who, you know, want to go a different route. There, that's understandable. Uh, and maybe they need to save some money, or they just, you know, uh, want to get into the weeds, as you say, a little bit more as to what's going on. Um, one thing I do want to mention here, uh, in regards to that, Ted, is um, I think when I think of you course nowadays i think of your head work and suspensions you know i bought a few wilbur shocks uh for my airheads from you over the years uh but one thing i think that really stands out is your customer service and your willingness to spend some time with somebody on the phone much like we're doing today uh i know you know when i talk to you or we have a email exchange uh, you're very, very busy. Uh, sometimes I think a phone is might be another appendage that you've, you're probably going to grow <laughs> on your ear at some point. Uh, but I, I, just let me say, though, I'm not you know, trying to fluff you up here, but um, you know, the, the time you were able to take with folks and explain what's going on, explain the work, why you, you should have your suspension set up this way, why this shock has better... Uh, high compression rebound than another one that doesn't. Uh, it really makes somebody like me on the on the customer end comfortable with what they're buying. You gain a little bit more knowledge, and you know I I'm not I'm not hesitant uh, or whatever the final bill is uh, to pay it because I know I, I've gotten my money's worth. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, you know, actually, that's the part of the job that I enjoy the most, and it's it's also something that is so missing today. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Try and I'm try I'm just trying to buy a new stovetop for for our kitchen and try and get someone on the phone to yeah. talk to you about the differences in the models that they offer. It's 
it's just about impossible. And um, but I, I just enjoy the human interaction part of it. I always have. And um, yeah, I probably spend uh, a little bit too much of my time doing that. I'm sure you know a business. Uh, consultant would come in here and say, you know, that's uh, that's not efficient and you know, you're supposed to be the efficiency guy and look at you, you're wasting too right. much time. Yeah, just but, after you, you know, had the whole thing about time <laughs> availability, right? Yeah. Yeah, but you know, now when I'm I'm not stuck back in the service department, I'm now um you know, other than the head work and then of course we do suspension Rebuilding, uh, but you know I've got a great guy. We're really close to Fox Racing, Fox Shocks, and oh, okay. uh, Jeff Favorite, who spent 25 years at Fox, designing and testing suspension systems, decided to walk around the corner and check out Beamer Shop. And decided to come to work here. So you know I'm blessed. I actually have two guys from Fox that work here now. So that's really helped out a great deal. I'm so comfortable letting go of that part and and you know if, if you have a shock rebuilt here you're actually having a guy with 25 plus years of suspension development experience rebuilding your shocks i mean he's 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 great to have on the team and then casey uh who does all the order fulfillment and he also does a lot of phone orders he spent time at fox as well so uh i i'm blessed now with a really great crew so you and can take so you me. can take vacation, but suspension I work can. doesn't. <laughs> okay. I, yes, I can go to trade shows. I can meet with our suppliers. Yeah. I can I can chat on the phone with you uh, about uh, you know whatever it is that your that your needs are. Um, and so it's been a lot more fun. And you know I'm kind of heading into the twilight years here as far as working is concerned. And um, you know I want to be able to to enjoy this this time uh with this business and i i feel like i i really am now and 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 i i enjoy that part of of it uh interacting with the customer it's always fun one last thing uh and then i want to get you out of here on a few uh quick fire questions uh, i just want to make a note that i thought your uh, repair queue uh excel file was brilliant idea um you. that you do i i know why you put it up there uh, I think, uh, because you didn't want people calling and saying, when's my shit going to be ready? Um, but you right. Uh, but it's a great idea because you're keeping folks uh, abreast of where they are uh, in the workflow. Uh, it's yeah. easy to see, and it affords you a little bit more time uh, not to be just making a kind of ridiculous call to say, yeah, we'll be getting to it uh, next Thursday or whatever. So right. kudos to you. Well, kudos to you on that. That was a good move. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that uh, that helped a lot. Yeah. Uh, for the reasons you mentioned. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and just so people can see, yeah, we got it. We're working on it. It's yep. on the list. It's moving up the list. Yep. Yeah. In fact, I think when I sent my heads to you, I don't even know that I, I never bothered using it, but I think I was just happy to know that it was there in case I wanted to check. So... Okay, so here's, uh, I got a list of a handful of questions here. We've been asking everybody and um, seeing the different responses. Some are similar, some are different, and you might get a, f a kick out of a few of these. So uh, <laughs> the first one is uh, Ted Porter's Mount Rushmore of Airhead BMWs from 1970 to 1995. So the four you would carve up on the big mountain. Um, well... Me personally, yes. Um, well, you got to you got to put the ninety S in there. Okay. Uh, then uh, the R eighty G slash S, um, the R S, obviously the R one hundred R S. 
I mean, that's timeless, amazing, uh, what they came out with with that fairing. Um, and, I mean, you could, boy, I think the last one would probably be a toss-up between, you know, the R100GS certainly deserves some mention. That bike is, you know, beloved, beloved and, and uh, maintaining its value really well, and, and, um, and it's still an important motorcycle. But, you know, I really like the R100R. I know it's not classic-looking, and it's maybe got too much plastic for some people and so on, but go ride one. You know, it has a lot of the best of the airheads uh, on it, in it. You know, it's got four-piston Brembo calipers and big floating rotors, and it's got the, you know, the bigger Showa fork that, you know, with the, it's actually got, I believe that fork actually has bushings. So it actually you know, yeah. goes up and down like yeah. some of the, some of the, its predecessors were not, you know, had a lot of stiction. Um, uh, Paralever. Um, I mean, there's just so many things to like about that bike. They're just great fun to ride. So that, to me, that was a, a, a unique offering from them. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. I've got an R90S. I've got a, a 81GS. And I had an R100 uh, Mystic, a uh, couple of them over the years, as I've mentioned before. Yeah. And yeah, I've always wanted to get uh, a standard R100R, preferably, you know, the classic edition, you know, the one with the black and the pinstripes right. on it. Um, you know, maybe someday, but okay, uh, I'll, I'll approve uh, those four. So well <laughs> okay. done. Um, okay, Ted Porter's best roadside repair while riding or worst roadside breakdown? Um, on my own bikes. Yes, what we're talking about. Yeah, or maybe you uh, were riding with somebody and something happened. To... Well, um, uh, I would say riding my Slash Seven from Maryland up to the races in Loudon, New Hampshire, which we used to do every Father's Day weekend, and pouring down rain, bike starts running like crap. Um, pull over the side of the road, running on one cylinder, pull the front cover off, and water just pours out from around the points cavity. And I had a Dyna 3 ignition back then. That's all we had back in those days. And um, uh, one of the sensors had died. And I tried to clean it up, and I did just no, no, uh, no luck. Uh, but then I remembered I had a points plate in my spares under the seat, so uh, I pulled that out of there and put it on the bike and plugged it in and got back on the road. I mean, that just jumps out at me because uh, I'd kind of forgotten about that points plate. It had been there for years. So it was and, in the uh, uh, in the tool tray or something? Yep, yep, yep. Just had some miscellaneous spares in there, and here we are. It was raining. We're under an overpass. Bike's not running. It was cold. what are we going to do now how far can we run on one cylinder can't get this other side running sensors dead (laughs) i'm like damn what are we going to do and i pulled out a i I dug and dug into this you know bag of goodies and there was a points plate boy yeah what a great revelation that that must have been yeah (laughs) so um the worst one yeah by far uh and this was not a repair that slash seven was new this was probably back in 79, maybe 1980. And um, 
I rode over to a buddy's house and wanted him to see my new bike. Um, he was riding a Yamaha XS650. That was sort of the, the triumph-looking Yamaha. It was yep. a great bike. Yeah. And um, so we went out hooting and hollering and having a good old time. And, uh, well, let's just say that uh, we were ignoring the, the speed limit signs as we were he- heading down Interstate 270. And uh, we wanted to see if that ugly, old, slow BMW motorcycle could keep up with his bike. And uh, so, you know, he full throttles it and I full throttle it. Well, of course, we get pulled over. And uh, I pull over the left shoulder and I hit something. It's this uh, odd-looking piece of steel and cast iron and nobody knows what it is you know we went back to look at it nobody knows what the hell it was but but when i hit the shoulder when the cop pulled us over i hit that thing and the bike went up in the air and when it came down i had no air in the front tire the rim was bent uh it knocked a hole in the oil pan and crimped the left header pipe this is my brand new oh my god seven, and i am just heart sick i'm i'm lucky i didn't crash I kept it under control because we were going fast, and and even the cop came up to me and and made some comment about I can't believe you saved it, but uh, yeah, that was a very sad day. I'd say <laughs> and, so. And I wasn't riding that bike home. That bike had to be had to be towed out of there. But um, that was that was my worst experience with that bike, and it happened early on. All right, Ted, what is your take on the uh, custom cafe scene these days? Um, I guess it depends on which one they're chopping up. Um, you know, on the one hand, hey, it's your bike. <laughs> you do whatever you want. It's not my motorcycle. Um, but I also know there, you know, some of this stuff, well, they don't make them anymore. And, uh, will there come a time when, you know, people are going to want to make the bike more functional and, uh, and, and, and are, are some parts becoming harder and harder to get? I mean, you know, look, if you hack up a subframe, big deal. There's lots of subframes. Yeah. Somebody wants to turn it back into a regular bike, they can do it. It's it's not a big deal. And some of it's art. Some of it's really cool, you know. And uh, and it's innovative. And people are getting creative. So it's hard to not appreciate it. I, I guess I'm probably, uh, you know, in the uh, right in the middle on, on this one. You know, I... Uh, uh, I have some purist in me, but not 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 diehard purist, and I appreciate what some guys are are coming up with. Do so, you, are you seeing uh, younger customers or more business with those yeah. kind of bikes? Well, good point because this is bringing in the younger guys instead of just you know us old farts riding these things. And if we want that passion and enthusiasm to stay alive, then yeah, we we need the younger guys to to get involved so more power to them what one design change uh would you go back and tell the bmw engineers you get in the time machine you could go back uh and make one change in the model run from 70 to 95 what is the one uh you would have them do jeez there and there are so many right (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, you could start off by saying, "Don't take the circlip out of the output shaft, please. Just, just don't. Just things will go way better for a whole lot of people if you just don't. If you just leave that clip there." Um, conversely, so conversely, though, uh, it did uh, spur your business on for a number of years. 
Yeah, but, you know, at the cost of... What? Lot, you know, that money could have been spent on a lot of other things. Okay, uh, fair enough. When I think about the riders uh, aspect, you yeah. know, because the trans- transmission works expensive. And the longer you ride with that missing circlet, the more expensive it gets. Yep. And so I just feel for some of them guys, you know, I'm like, ah, I got some bad news. It tore up the output shaft, it tore up the helical gear on the cluster, and the shift works bad, and it cracked the case, and, you know, it's just going to get really expensive. I just feel bad for those guys. So, yeah, one circlip. What is that circlip? 80 cents? I don't know what it sells for. Um, leave that clip in there. I, I, that's probably going to be the big one for me. I, I would say so, and I was curious what your take on that would be, given the fact that I mentioned uh, you repaired so many of those. Okay, yeah. all right, here's the last one, Ted. We'll get you out uh, here on uh, this burning question. Everybody wants to know, uh, what oil does Ted Porter run in his airhead? <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're <laughs> kidding. This is your outro. <laughs> <laughs>
for oil. You know, I asked a technical question, and he was still talking when they were turning the lights off in that convention. So he was, he was like the, the Ted Porter of oils. <laughs> but he was so passionate. He was telling me about the, the difference in the length of the chains of the, the, of the molecules, huh. you know, the, 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 the U.S.-made additives versus the other imported additives. And, I mean, he was just passionate about his oil. And it's what BMW was bottling at the time. That's right, yeah. So we started selling the Spectro stuff, and then, of course, BMW was bottling Castrol, and then now they're bottling Shell, and, you know, I, I can't speak for BMW, but I can, I can guess that they probably, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's all, I don't know, who brings them the best cigars when they have a business meeting? I don't know. Right. Who has the best bid? <laughs> you know, I don't know. But, um, but I stuck with the Spectre over these years just because I met the guy, and I just appreciated his passion for, for what he does. Well, fair enough. Uh, that was a longer uh, answer than I had anticipated. Sorry. But no, that was a great story. That was a great story. Okay. I, I love that. All right. So uh, folks want to get in touch with you. There's one easy way to do that. Uh, Beamershop.com. Uh, yep. That's exactly how you get in touch. So again, uh, airhead specific. We're talking about head work. Um, just to, to refresh, uh, you do the, uh, valves, uh, and the heads. And I know when you did, uh, the cylinder on my R90, which was a steel, steel bore, you sent that off to your buddies at Millennium Tech. So yes. uh, that gets farmed out that way. Of course, all the great, uh, suspension products you carry, not only for airheads, uh, but also later model BMWs. And then you've got a great mail order parts catalog for a lot of typical, uh, airhead, uh, consumable parts and things like that. So, Ted, uh, I really enjoyed talking with you today uh, and learning a little bit more about you and uh, your uh, long history with the bikes. And just let me say, uh, I know we'll speak again, probably much to my demise when something falls apart, but I'll look forward to talking with you again and continued success. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Hey, you bet. Boy, that was nice catching up with Ted. Always a treat visiting with him. Links to his website are in the About section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.